Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Portfolio construction and risk management are tasks that take you away from where you need to be, building relationships with your clients. Aberdeen Standard Investments can support you by creating bespoke investment solutions. Outsourcing portfolio and risk management creates efficiencies, enabling you to focus on fulfilling the ambitions of both your clients and your business. This podcast is being prepared with cares based on sources believed to be reliable and all opinions expressed are honestly held at the applicable date. However, it is general information only and we accept no liability for any errors or omissions. It's being prepared without taking into account the particular objectives, financial situation or needs of any investor. Investing involves risk, including the risk of losing capital. It's important that before acting, investors should consider the their own circumstances, objectives, and financial situation. The information's appropriateness to them and consult financial and tax advisors. Investors should consider the PDS available at AberdeenStandard.com before making an investment decision. Products issued by Aberdeen Standard Investments Australia Limited, ABM 59002123364, AFSL number 204263. Welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. My name is Fraser Jack. I'm your host for today, and I'm here today with the National Manager of Business Coaching uh, from Affinia. Welcome, Michael. Thanks very much, Fraser. Pleasure to be here. Nice to speak with you. Yeah, fantastic to have you. Now, um, before we get started, we're going to get into some conversations around scaling businesses, and you obviously see a a stack of businesses around the country that are doing very well and and understanding what they're doing and really uh, getting into the the, um, in-depth, into the process and all these types of things that actually make um, make their business scalable. But before we do that, do you want to give us a bit of an overview of just you, 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 your position and what you do you know, on a day to day basis? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Um, so, look, I've been with Affinia for around about six years now, um, and I run our business coaching team. So, we have a team of four business coaches that support our advisors. Uh, we're a national licensee, so we have advisors in, in most states around the country. Uh, and the support that we provide really focuses uh, around business planning and, and helping our advice businesses become more successful. And success means different things to every separate business. And, and we have firms that range from having nearly 20 advisors through to single advisor firms. So every one of those business, um, also depending on where they are in their, their business journey, has a, a vastly different set of business goals. So we work very closely with our advisors uh, to help identify what those goals are uh, and then hopefully help them achieve them. And we do that through uh, a whole range of things. I mean, across the licensee, we do offer a high level of support um, through obviously the business coaching service, we've got advice coaching, technical support and training and that sort of stuff. But uh, in terms of what we do, most of it is focused around the business planning space, which we're doing right now. Uh, we've got a digital business planning tool that we're running all of our advisors through. And out of that, uh, will always come a, a large number of business objectives that we can help them uh, achieve over the course of the year and you know, progress that through into longer term planning as well. Well, fantastic. It sounds like uh, you've got your uh, work cut out for you. Now, we, you and I always geek out on the conversation around client uh, experience or client user journey or whatever we, whatever the terms we want to call it at the time. Uh, we tend to talk a lot about how, you know, and I suppose this is what you're working with your advisors on a lot as well, around the actual micro moments that take place in or throughout the client's uh, you know, 
journey or experience with that advisor. Um, and, and you sort of break it into sep- sep- separate, you know, sections. And we talk about, you know, the, before the client gets advice uh, all the way through to, you know, becoming a loyal ongoing um, relationship client. I thought we might break down those sections. So if you want to just give us a bit of an overview of what, what that looks like, and then we'll go into each one individually. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, we've had plenty of conversations around this. And I think my, my focus, if I just take a step back just slightly on, on the client experience and this whole client journey, my focus really ramped up a few years ago when I was incredibly fortunate to jump on a, a study tour uh, over to New York um, with a, a bunch of great advisors uh, that was run by NetWealth, and we were able to sit through sessions through uh, that were held by some of America's leading financial advisors, um, asset managers, and, and so on. And there was one guy in particular, uh, a gentleman by the name of Joe Duran, who ran uh, a very, very large financial planning firm, um, and his, his main focus was around the client experience. Uh, his quote was that, of your future profitability is going to come down to your client experience as you're speaking to the advisors in the room. And he went a bit further. He said, essentially, pretty much all of your clients can obtain the services and products that you're recommending uh, or selling um, online, uh, either at little or next to no cost uh, or for free, essentially. So if you're not focusing 100% on that client experience process, there's less and less reason for clients to see you as a financial advisor, pay your fee when they can go online uh, and get the same same products essentially for free. Um, now, when Joe Duran speaks, I mean, his business was called United Capital. Uh, I think we all need to listen because he sold his business in the last couple of years and he sold it for $750 million. So the man does know what he's talking about uh, and he's one of the most engaging speakers that you'll ever come across. So if you ever do get the opportunity to listen to Joe, I would certainly recommend that you take it. And for any of the listeners out there that obviously you're all podcast fans, uh, you've probably heard of Michael Kitsis as well. Michael Kitsis interviewed Joe Duran on episode 100 of his podcast. And Joe really articulates his whole proposition very well during that podcast. So uh, I would definitely recommend everyone jumps on and, and has a good listen at that one. Yeah, that's a very good episode. That one, it, 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 it was a long episode, one of uh, Michael's longer episodes and, um, I think they're all long episodes, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, but uh, but, but it's um it's a really interesting one because um, Joe is very you know very much taps into the emotional part of the conversation, um, and Michael's Michael's a very technical type of person, so it was very interesting yeah. to see them to talk talk about things, and often um, you know they, they're sort of coming at things from a very different angle. So good episode. They were they were, and so Joe, as, as you touched on in your question. He articulated that the client experience really starts from the moment that your client is thinking that they need your product or service. Um, and this is for any purchase. It could be if you're, if, you're, if you're wanting to purchase a coffee or a T-shirt, for example, but obviously we're talking about financial planning, uh, through to them being a, a loyal, ongoing, fee-paying client. So that, that journey that can stretch out for, for quite a while and hopefully almost over the lifetime of the client once you've got a, a client on board who becomes a, a loyal client um, through your ongoing service. And there's, there's a great framework. I mean, I, I love a framework. I think it makes it so much easier to design a process when you do have the framework to work through. And there is a, a framework that a lot of the bigger marketing firms and marketing teams will use when they're looking to market and develop products and services. And that is called the, the client journey or the buyer's journey framework. And that really goes through five stages. Uh, and that's being awareness, uh, consideration, purchase, 
service and then loyalty. So it's a, it's a multi-step process. Um, and I suppose we can go through those in a bit of detail uh, if you like. And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, we can definitely go through each of these individually and even to the point where I sort of look at these, um, you know, five steps and you can almost break them down even further into, you know, the, the, it's, these are steps that get you through and to, to and before and uh, during and after the first meeting uh, and then you can either use it again before, during, and after the, the the subsequent meetings, all the way through your existing process, or, or if you're refining yeah. your process. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah, so I think the first stage really is that awareness piece, where the client becomes aware that they've got a, a problem that needs solving. And and normally, when it comes to financial planning, it's because that client has had some sort of trigger event. Um, now, it might be a health event that's made them think about insurance solutions, for example, or they've had a family member that's had a health event that may have had a successful claim and payout. And now that they're aware that, that maybe their financial position is a little vulnerable because they don't have any insurance. Uh, it might be that they've had a child or they want to save for a home or um, retirement's approaching and they've never seen a financial advisor. Um, so this is that awareness stage where they know that they need to see an advisor, but they're not quite sure where to go and, and where to look. Uh, and this is really where you can create an advantage for your firm uh, through marketing strategies such as content marketing and utilising uh, the, the effectiveness and the power of, of blogs, of social media advertising, of live events. Um, I, I know a lot of firms do very, very well and a lot of their success is based around educational seminars, uh, educating the broader public and then bringing clients into their business who are now made aware of the services that they offer um, and of the needs that they they have that they may may not have known that they had before. Yeah, this is a really interesting point. And I've heard people say before that they, you know, the the client needs to know they're sick and know that you're the doctor for two definite things to become aware that they can then contact you. But there's a whole lot of little micro decisions that happen in a client's head um, that then on their journey towards actually reaching out towards a, a financial planner. And that, you know, that could be, you know, thinking they might need something, but then, you know, having voices in their head that say, oh, they haven't got enough money or, you know, like they, have to, they need to overcome a whole lot of small hurdles along the way. It's not just a, um, I mean, and you're right, it could be a trigger event. It could just be a health issue or something that is a major trigger. But generally speaking, it's also there is a whole lot of small triggers, you know, a little bit of branding, a little bit of what, what you do, a little bit of your philosophy, um, getting to know who you are as, a, as an advisor before they even make that decision to pick up the phone or to send you an email. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's really where the power of, of blogging, um, and it might even be podcasting, for example, um, which is a, a brilliant tool, uh, as you well know, yes, um, in, to get your message out there to the, to the broader public. And when you talk about all those micro decisions, this is really where having your client value proposition and being able to clearly articulate the value that you provide to your ideal type of client comes into play. Because you might have, uh, let's let's say you deal with younger accumulators that uh, may have started a family. So these uh, this demographic is going to have a particular set of needs uh, that they need serviced via a financial advisor. It might be how to save up for education, uh, how to manage cash flow better because we're down to one wage and we've got a massive mortgage that we're paying off and you know, need to get through the maternity leave phase and, and those sorts of things. Uh, might be thinking more longer term around structuring your superannuation so that you can maximise compound returns over the next 30 years and retire the right way. So whatever the pressing needs are for those particular clients, that should really form the basis or the, or the crux of what 
you're projecting out uh, for your business in terms of your content marketing strategy uh, with your blogs and with your advertising and your events. Uh, and blogs can be video blogs, written blogs, and, and all the rest of it. Because when these clients are aware that they've got these problems, what are they going to be doing? They're going to be jumping online. They're going to be asking family and friends uh, where they can get the service that they need to, um, to, to cover off on their, these needs. If you're projecting out there that you service these types of clients, then they're more likely uh, to be attracted to your firm. And then you're dealing with the right type of client and your ideal client more frequently. Um, yeah, this, this, this seems to be like a lot of the successful businesses I see these days are doing this very, very well. They're, they're letting the their target market know exactly how they help other people like them rather than just sitting back on the sort of more of the old or traditional school, the old school ways of just, you know, hoping your, your referral sources will refer you, you know, the accountant, yeah, whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and good point you make there around referral sources. So I think a good thing that most advisors can do in this space as well is actually educate their referral sources more deeply around the type of services and the value that they provide their clients. A really good way that I've heard it numerous times in the past, I don't know how frequently it's actually done, but if you, for example, have uh, an accountant that's a, a great referral partner or you want them to be a great referral partner because most referral partners, partnerships probably don't quite uh, produce as fruitfully as, as what most advisors would like. I mean, why, why wouldn't you consider... Uh, offering your services to that accountant and their client-facing staff basically for, for free or, or at cost so that these um, client-facing staff and the accountant can actually walk through your process. They become very confident in your process. They understand the value that you can provide. Uh, and then they'll be far more likely to refer their clients to you because they've got so much more comfort around it. And I think further to that, try and control the messaging a little bit with your referral partners. Uh, don't leave it up to the referral partner to refer you in the words that they think are most appropriate. They might refer you as the, the insurance guy or whatever it might be, but perhaps you want to give them some wording that uh, more appropriately represents uh, your brand and the value that you can provide um, and talk up your services a little bit. For example, you know, why don't you go and see Fraser? Uh, I've got all my insurances with him. He's looked after my superannuation. We're really comfortable with what he's done. Most of my great clients go and see Fraser uh, as a financial advisor. And I know that he can help you with your cash flow problems that you're suffering at the moment. I mean, that that is a much uh, more powerful referral sort of technique than go and see the insurance guy, for example. Yeah, uh, yep. couldn't agree more. Except, except for the fact that um, you, you can't refer him to Fraser because he's not uh, not currently a licensed financial planner. So don't. Uh, there's plenty of that in the commentary at the moment uh, yeah. with regard to who is who is and who isn't on the far. But there must we'll be put all the Fraser all on the far. <laughs> so that's pretty much all of the awareness stuff that goes on. And, and the next step is um, sort of consideration. What? How does this work? Well, the consideration phase is. After the client has been made aware, now what they're doing is looking for you know, two or three providers that might be able to service their needs. So essentially, this is where they're doing their research. Now, where are you going to do your research? Obviously, most people these days will jump online. Uh, and when they jump online, they're probably doing it on their mobile phone or on their tablet. Um, so what this really speaks to is having uh, some very good up-to-date content on your website uh, and getting a lot of the basics uh, in terms of your website content right. So making sure that it's structured correctly, that it's mobile friendly. Uh, it's really important that you've got up-to-date images, uh, ideally of yourself 
and your team uh, on your website so that your clients can actually uh, start to go down that process of knowing, liking and trusting you as the advisor and someone that they would be happy to engage with. Um, so the website plays a really big part in this because we know that the majority of people when they're doing their research, even when, when they get referred by a trusted referrer, will jump onto your website to do, their, to do further research and, and to check you out. Yeah, so this is a really clear, um, as far as your value proposition is concerned as well, right? So knowing exactly who you're serving, how you're serving them well, then explaining what your process is because um, I think um, Joe mentioned in, that, in his podcast that the very first thing you to do is really just to triage what is that person coming in for? Is there a, like a gaping injury that they have that needs to be fixed um, before really going into the, you know, this is our process, this is how we roll, this is, you know, we, we look at clients' values and goals and dreams and aspirations and this is blah, blah, blah. Um, and then really presenting yourself or your business as a, this is the way we help our clients. Would you like to be involved in that? Absolutely. And, and the best way to do that is through, I think, video explainers and video content on your website. I mean, video these days is, is so easy to produce. Uh, essentially, you can produce a very high quality video that you can put on your website just on your mobile phone. And I suppose we all know that these days. We've been to a, a thousand PD days and uh, conferences where the power of video has been explained. But I think in this stage of the client journey, when a client is considering whether or not they're going to make that next step and engage with you, this is where it really comes into play and becomes a really powerful tool. Yeah, this so all is. the content, whether it's visual, whether it's um, you know podcasts, things like that that you can put on your website and educational content um, so that your clients can trust you much quicker than they otherwise would, then this is where it comes into play. Yeah, this is where scouts into um, the conversation because uh, if, if, you, if you're just you know only seeing one person and explaining what you do and how you do it, then obviously that's going to take a lot of time. If you've got those videos on your website, then people are watching them. You really want the, the, the client or the new potential client to walk into the office, almost have made the decision that, you know, I resonate with everything you say, or you're the one I want to choose, uh, all those sorts of things before you even meet them, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, developing that content, doesn't necessarily have to take a lot of time and effort and be that harder uh, task either. You can often do it when you're communicating with your existing clients and that could be utilised for attracting new clients as well. One of the things that we often recommend to our advisors is that when you're receiving queries from your clients and if you receive the same query more than once, the best thing that you can do is uh, publish that response in the form of either a blog article or a video uh, library and then you start building up this large library of content uh, that can be used you know, for the dual purpose of educating your existing client base, uh, potentially attracting new clients that are of the same ilk of, of, as your existing client base. Um, and that helps with your, uh, your management of your onboarding process because you're getting similar clients coming through so that you can really hand on heart tell these clients that you're an expert uh, at delivering advice for someone within their uh, particular demographic. But the other thing with the website is you've actually got to make it really easy for clients to be able to contact you. Uh, there's a lot of talk around removing friction uh, in the advice process. And we know that the advice process is extremely lengthy. I mean, the FBA put out some great data uh, quite recently that shows that it, it's basically a 21-hour journey um, in the amount of work that's involved for an advice firm from meeting client through to uh, having all the products you know, lodged and, and having the client as, a, as an ongoing client over that first 12-month period, which, which is a crazy amount of time. So anything that we can do to reduce the number of steps uh, that you and or your client needs to make throughout that process are really important. 
And this is where technology can come into play around uh, offering uh, online calendar booking systems and things like that, for example. So it's just one less thing that a client needs to do because if a client on their phone when they're watching Netflix at night at 8 o'clock um, can book in a meeting or a 15-minute introductory chat with an advisor uh, over the next couple of days, well, that's one less thing they have to do tomorrow in terms of picking up and calling the receptionist and bouncing back and forth with potential times to meet. Uh, if you can reduce two or three steps in that process, then again, it's just a small thing, but all of these incremental improvements do add up over a long period of time to maximise your chance of attracting more of the right type of client and then ultimately maximising your chance of success. Yeah, I think a big part of that client experience is, is just that, you know, make it easy, um, make it easy, make it simple, make it quick, take some of the pain away from it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's about delivering advice and and adapting your process to how clients want to be communicated to as well. So some clients will want to meet you face-to-face, some will want to do it uh, online, some maybe over the phone for a large part of the process. Uh, I think that we need to be flexible and adaptable enough in today's day and age, uh, recognising that technology adoption is just increasing at a rapid rate of knots, uh, that we need to offer that flexibility to our clients. Yeah, now I'm thinking part of the consideration phase is really around the, the concept of the, the first meeting or the discovery meeting or the, the meeting where you really get to know them and they really get to know you. Having a process around that meeting, having an agenda and a structure and a clear format so that you're not, the meeting's just not going often on a tangent. What are your thoughts around that? I think that's incredibly important. Um, I'm a massive advocate for an agenda in pretty much every single meeting. And I don't think the agenda should be a surprise for the client either. So if you've got your process bedded down really well, that agenda should be sent out to the client prior to the meeting. Uh, And where possible, give the client a call or have someone from your office give the client a call just to quickly run through the agenda and make sure that what you're covering off in that meeting is, is actually covering off what the client wants to cover off as well. And ask them if there's anything else that you think that you want to discuss or you want to raise, Uh, please let us know now. We'll add it to the agenda because we want this to be the best meeting that you've had with a financial planner um, that you've ever had. And we want, yeah, obviously to tick all the boxes and get all the information across to you that that you need. Uh, So I think that pre-meeting process is really important. Uh, You might even use technology and video again at this point in time just to send the client an explanation of what actually goes on in the first meeting. Uh, Depending on how you, you structure your meetings, I quite like the idea of a a quick 15-minute introductory uh, call to the client prior to that first meeting um, where you can, at a high level, articulate uh, your your value, your services, how you help clients, get a brief understanding around the client needs and how you might be able to help them. And you can decide there and then whether or not you might be a good fit for each other before you progress through to a much lengthier discovery meeting. Um, So I think that's a really important part of the puzzle because... I think a lot of clients are actually pretty anxious when they go to see a financial planner. They're, they're, um, they're talking about money, which is, is not a comfortable topic to talk about for many people. So if you can put them at ease through explaining the process and making them aware of what's coming up uh, and do that well before the meeting, then I think you're going to have a much more successful, a much more engaged and a much more in-depth meeting uh, when you are doing your discovery meeting, which could take up to a good couple of hours for a good goals-based type meeting. Yeah, I like the idea of trying to work out someone's expectations, what they want to get out of the meeting, uh, and then thinking 
you know, putting, putting, you know, their, their thoughts and ideas and all the things that might be going through their head, especially when it comes to, you know, the consider, you know, considering st- stages, are, are they considering working with us and giving them the answers. I've, I've sort of prescribed to the idea that if somebody actually has to ask you, it's too late. They've, they've had to ask you, you know, like if they say, oh, I've, I've been sitting here for ages and, and you haven't addressed fees yet, for example, because it's been going on in their mind. And uh, for so, you know, for the last 45 minutes, whereas, if you can work out the expectations and say, what, what, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about fees. We're going to talk about, and they, they can see it's in the process. So it sort of like puts that to the back of their mind again, rather than being at the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, everyone's got their own thoughts on fees. I've, I personally would have no issue in disclosing fee ranges up front for a client. If you do have set kind of packages that you do offer your clients, just so again, that they've got that understanding of, of what's involved and then they're not going to be thinking as you say for the first 45 minutes around how much is this going to cost me and actually not paying attention to what you're saying because you're trying to educate your clients a lot through these first uh, two or three meetings around not only your process and the business but around how financial products work how markets work how insurance work and all that really important stuff you don't want them thinking about other topics and not digesting what you're saying one, because it's not good for the client, but, you know, secondly, you're going to have to repeat yourself at some other point down the track. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the more disclosure, the more transparency I think that you can provide up front to provide that level of comfort for a client, I think the better. Yeah. I think we also need to make our meetings uh, as digital as possible. Obviously, we meet with clients, you know, potentially via you know, Zoom and Teams and online meetings and so on. We've got to try and make it as efficient for, for them as possible, utilising digital signatures and, and things like that as well. The, the guys at United Capital, uh, Joe Duran, he basically didn't want his clients picking up a pen the entire the way the entire way through uh, the, the financial planning process. So everything was done via video. Everything was done via digital signatures. Um, everything, all the calls were recorded. The videos were recorded. Everything, which can then obviously help at the back end with your file noting process and and things like that. I think recording your video, recording your meetings. Uh, and having them on video is a really powerful tool for your back office staff uh, because your power planners and your, your client service managers, if you have them within your firm, uh, can then watch the video of the meeting that you've had with the client if they're not participating in them uh, themselves and, and really get a thorough understanding of, of what the client's needs are because they can understand the tone of the conversation by actually watching the video. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the concept of recording your meetings and, and you know, it's just so many other reasons, Not you know, your staff can pick up on it. You can always use that if, if you need to, you know, have a conversation. Somebody ever says to you, you didn't talk about something, you can say, yeah, here we did. Um, here's, a, here's a copy of recording of the meeting. Yeah, uh, but I think another, another way, so just on the, uh, on the client experience there, one of them, I think, is, is the range of services that you offer a client as well. And if, if you're a, a specialist um, in, in a particular area of advice, you might be a risk specialist. That's great. That's, that's your value proposition. But if, if you don't operate in that niche speciality, then I think having a, a full range of services that a client may need uh, under the one roof is a very powerful tool as well for your business. Uh, there was a business we used to have in the network uh, up in Queensland, a brilliant business, and they had a proposition that they called an, an integrated advisory board, where essentially their process was that the client would meet with the financial advisor. Uh, they would have a client manager sit in that meeting as well. And it was a long meeting. It was a two to three hour full in-depth discovery meeting. Uh, and their proposition to that client was on the back of this, we're going to have a roundtable discussion with other specialists within the business. So on the financial planner, I'll look after the wealth side of things. 
we've got a risk specialist. Uh, we've got an accountancy firm. They originally were an accountancy firm, so we've, we've got an accountant. Uh, we've got a lending specialist, and we'll also facilitate any estate planning requirements. And so we'll do a bit of a roundtable uh, analysis of your situation, and each one of these specialists, as part of the advisory board, will be able to provide a, a bespoke recommendation to you so that you have the best possible advice in all areas of your financial world. And I thought that was a really powerful tool because it saves the client having to meet with one advisor for their wealth advice, another one for their risk advice, and then get referred on when we know that it probably won't happen, that they won't go and see three or four specialists. They can capture, capture it all under the one roof. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and it's all about the implementation after all. We've sort of discussed that in the past that uh, it's not always yeah. advice. It's about getting this stuff done. So I guess the next part after we've been through the, you know, the client's journey of getting initial advice and, and going through that and implementing things is around the concept of, you know, what what's the ongoing service going to be? Yeah, absolutely. And look, we know that when, you, when you're building a business, it's far more difficult to attract a client than necessarily to, to retain a client. So this is really where that client retention piece comes in and, and being able to offer that enduring value to a client. And in order to do so, that comes on to your uh, ongoing advice process and I guess the, the level of service that you can provide your client throughout that period, which may be hopefully for you know, 10, 20, 30 years because we do want to have long-term ongoing relationships with our clients. And I think that service piece starts pretty early on in, in the equation. After the client's met with you, they've decided to engage, uh, you've implemented all the product solutions, if there are product solutions and, and the strategies uh, that are involved. What we don't want is the client to have any unanswered questions or potentially any buyer's remorse. So I'm a massive advocate of jumping in and, and after about 90 days, it could be 60 days, but you know, having that 90-day check-in call with the client just to cover off any questions that they may have after the you know, purchase process, uh, just to make sure that they're comfortable um, and they don't have any any ongoing and lingering worries that, that may affect that ongoing relationship. Yeah, this is a really interesting, I find there's a lot of different ways that this can go. Obviously, there was a lot of conversation um, and topical around the idea of 12-month service agreements um, from both the legislation point of view and um, and what you're going to provide for that client and getting the client to sort of renew their their interest every 12 months sort of thing. Um, but just in yeah. that side of service, I also find interesting that service is quite a, is a thing that often we as consumers expect. Um, so we'll have an expectation and a, a level of service. Uh, and some of that service will include you know, financial advice, but there are other layers to that relationship. Um, and in a lot of times there's an emotional layer to that relationship. Like, for example, just knowing I've got somebody there that's got my back could be a, a value to that client. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we talked about before around that awareness and consideration piece, so much effort uh, can go into talking about your client value proposition and the services that you offer. Now it's actually time to probably reinforce that message a little bit uh, and just continually explain to the client's uh, that you are always there. The phone's always going to be answered. Emails are always going to be responded to in a timely manner when you do have any ongoing concerns. Because we know that essentially the value in a financial plan um, is, is not necessarily just in constructing the plan, but it's amending the plan as well to life's changing circumstances. Because literally the moment that a client walks out the door and, and, they've and you've got your SOA all signed off, we know that markets aren't going to do what they think they, that we think they're going to do. I mean, if anyone that had a plan at this time last year, um, it went completely out the window. As soon as the markets capitulated, 
uh, and then bounce back um, due to COVID. You might have been impacted uh, with your job or your industry might have gone under like many had uh, with COVID over the last 12 months, in which case, again, the plan has gone completely out the window. So really, this is the part about re reassuring the client that you are there for the long term and that you are there to provide that enduring value to them. And when life circumstances do change, that we can change the structure and, and the nature of the plan and be adaptable. So I think the initial plan is really looking at that long-term strategic sort of level of outcomes, what retirement should look like for you, how do we get there over the long term. But along the way, we need to make some tactical changes because markets are either going to go better or worse than what we forecast in the plan. So each year, let's start thinking about tweaking the plan, um, whether it's levels of contributions, whether it's the level of insurance that you have, obviously, year in, year out, um, incomes change, so our cash flow and budgeting strategy and you know, the automation of savings, those sorts of levels all need to change. So let's keep uh, adaptable and let's keep pivoting so that we can keep you on track for your long-term financial plan. Yeah. Are there any, uh, are there any practical tips that you see out in the, um, in the field that are working well with regards to this, you know, uh, this ongoing service of clients and this, um, this sort of yearly renewal? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, again, technology can, can play a role here. Um, and there are some great tools, some great cash flow and budgeting tools, um, such as My Prosperity and MoneySoft, and, and there are a few others that can really assist in this uh, stage of the client relationship. And essentially, I think those tools are invaluable for a client to have essentially, you know, what's essentially like a white labeled, you know, app for your business in their pocket at all times, that they can instantaneously check their complete financial position. They feel connected to your business. And you can communicate and engage by that platform on a regular basis uh, as well. I think tools like that are very, very important to maintain this level of service uh, and retain your clients. But as well as that, there's that ongoing education piece. This is where I think communication to your client base plays a huge role. Business Health over the years have put through, uh, put out a number of reports. I love the work that those guys do. And some of the statistics that they put out around the increased profitability of firms that communicate 10 times or more per year with their clients. Uh, some of the figures are, are quite staggering. They're in the order of 250% more profitable, you know, firms that, that communicate 10 times or more than, than those that don't. So here's where your ongoing communication strategy to clients really comes into play. So I think that's, that's as important as ever. And again, reflecting on, I guess, the last 12 months with COVID and, you know, the, the oscillating markets that just went absolutely crazy. What, what a better time to communicate to clients around the value of advice and the value of long-term thinking and of sticking to the plan so that your client doesn't get nervy and then dive out of the markets at the worst possible time. Um, it's times like those, um, and that's what your client's really paying you for in terms of your ongoing fees, is that reassurance and to provide that sound mind and that sound thinking uh, so that they stick to their plan and don't make any rash decisions. So I think it's, there's, um, Carl Richards has a really good picture that he, that he, that he was obviously the, the picture guy, the sketch guy, uh, around yeah, the advisor sits between the client and stupid. So it's really about making stupid decisions. So before you make a stupid decision, I think this is where the advisor really needs to step in and be that sounding board and prevent your client from making a potentially stupid decision in getting out of the market at the wrong time. Yeah, I don't think if we look back over the last 12 months, I'm pretty sure we can all find lots of examples of people who decided to, you know, freak out and jump to cash at the, at the worst possible moment. We've obviously, 
we probably all know people that have pulled money out of their super um, over that time frame, and, and some of them may have needed to do that, but also feel that probably a lot of them did that didn't need to. Uh, in that, so yeah, that, oh, exactly. And um, and I think there's a few other things. There's a tip I'll share that a couple of advisors are looking at in a network, and we're building a bit of a, a program around this. One, it helps your clients enormously with their estate planning. Uh, but the other, I think it, it's in terms of your client acquisition strategy, this is a really good uh, a good process to follow. And that's around what we call a, an executive briefing. So once you've put in place your full financial plan, uh, the client, whether you're facilitating it or not, uh, has sorted out their estate plan and their will. Obviously, as part of that process, they need to nominate an executor. Now, what does the average executor who's just been nominated know about being an executor? Probably absolutely nothing because they never would have done it before. Uh, they may only have to ever do it once or twice in their entire life. So there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into uh, being uh, in the role of the executor. However, it's a very important role that that person plays. Uh, and there can be some severe ramifications financially for the executor if they get it wrong. What we're looking at is building a process around what we call this executive briefing, whereby once the wheel's in place, you then offer a, a short meeting with the executor, up to half an hour uh, with your client, and just brief them on their roles uh, and the responsibility of an executor and encourage them that obviously you need their contact details because if anything happens to the client, you can reach out and vice versa. They need your contact details. Uh, you can put together a nice little information pack, put a little kit together, spend a little bit of money um, on a nice folder uh, down at Officeworks, hand that to the executor. And the beauty about that is the executor is probably a similar type of person to your client. Uh, they're probably a relative or a very, very close friend. Um, that's typically how you know, who would be nominated as an executor. So one of our advisors used to do this, and he said that his best run was six out of six of these executive briefings. He walked away with the executor as a client uh, because it's most likely that that executor doesn't have an advisor, given only around 20% of Australians do see a financial advisor. And I think it would be odds on that if they do have an advisor, their advisor doesn't go to that length uh, of, of service in providing that, that broader sort of briefing piece to the executor. So I, I think that's, that's a no-cost, essentially, process that you can follow to help acquire more of the right type of clients. And your existing client will love you, and hopefully that executor does as well. Yeah, great tip. Thank you. Now, the, um, this also brings us to the concept of, you know, what's going on in the client's mind around the, the final step, which is loyalty. You know, the, to me, like service is what you're doing and then loyalty is from the client's point of view of what they're, uh, they're bringing to the table or what they're going to do ongoing for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the part where clients become advocates of your business. So you've been able to deliver on your promise. You've been able to provide that high level of service for a number of years. And then your best referrers will be those long-term clients that really do see the value that you can provide and have experienced that value as well because they can share uh, their successes and their stories with their friends and, and family. And anytime they're asked for who you know, their friend or family member needs to see a financial planner, then who are they going to recommend? Of course, they'll recommend yourself. But it's important for clients that have been with you for a num number of years to continue to add uh, value. And you need to think about that enduring value piece. How do you keep adapting? Um, are there new services that you may need to bring into your business? so that you can continue to add more value to those existing clients. Because uh, there was a line I heard at a conference that uh, a client will leave you when they 
run out of future with. If they can't see a future with you, if they can't see that you're going to add any more value uh, to them and their situation, why would they keep paying you uh, an ongoing fee? They, they simply wouldn't. They'll walk away and either look after their affairs themselves or they may see another advisor that may provide value for, for what they need. So things that you can think about in this sort of space are a lot of advisors now are getting into private Facebook groups and things like that. So you might have a segment of your existing clients that you want to network with and have them network with each other on a private Facebook group. So again, it's that sense of community and keeping them very close to your business. I think that ongoing education piece, maybe having select events, educational seminars, things like that, where you get in an external speaker, maybe an economist or maybe a if you know any high-profile sports people or, or pay for uh, high-profile sports people to attend, uh, it's those types of events uh, that I think you can really put onto your existing clients uh, that will keep them very close to your business. And it's really important, I think, with those clients to, to start getting testimonials uh, and promoting testimonials via your website and, and other uh, communication tools that you, you use, whether it's a newsletter or blog, et cetera. Yeah, this is a really interesting point, the, the testimonials piece as well, because um, obviously, you know, community is a great idea. Uh, I love that. And, um, and you know, ongoing education, massive fan of as well. The testimonials, um, I always feel like, um, you know, like the reviews these days where it could go either way, you know, like um, as a consumer, I'd, I'd prefer to read a re- review than a testimonial because I kind of feel like a testimonial is only ever going to say good, good things. But I really wanted to hone in on the concept here of, the client being able to articulate the value that they get out of their advice relationship. Um, and I know, you know, whether it's a survey or a business health or whatever it might be, just, just honing in on that specific idea and just saying, you know, how are you going to find that out from your client, what they, what their perceived value is in the, out of the relationship? Yeah. And I think when you, you talk about surveys, you've, you've really hit the nail on the head that you do need to survey your clients quite regularly one of the really important things to do when you survey your clients is not just rely on one medium. If you're surveying your clients um, you know, via a survey monkey, an online form, uh, that's great. But you also need to do face-to-face and more in-depth uh, interviews with your clients to identify the value that they're receiving. And there's a couple of reasons for that. If you're doing solely online surveys, uh, the client's obviously not, uh, and if they're anonymous as well, clients can often be a bit harsher uh, with their feedback. So sometimes you want that, you want the honest truth. Um, and if you're only doing face-to-face style uh, feedback sessions you know, with your top clients, uh, they're going to be far more generous in their responses. They're not going to be anywhere near as critical of your services face-to-face. So if you're only doing one or the other, you're probably not getting a true reflection uh, of the feeling out there and uh, the perception of the clients of your services. So it's, I think it's really important to do both. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. You're right. The, the medium makes a difference and whether it's long or short or the quick answers are long form answers or whether they quite Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think this is, you know, this is really where you've got to put your business owner hat on and take on board that feedback um, and identify any weak points and any gaps. And this should form part of your planning as to how you can address that. So are there areas of service that your business aren't providing your clients that you need to um either bring in-house or that you can uh, establish referral arrangements and refer clients to other specialists that can satisfy their needs. You know, and if there's any weak point in your service offering with you know, your ongoing reviews or you know, contactability of your, your staff or yourself and things like that, well, these are, these are little things that can creep into very big things uh, over a period of time. So you need to address all of the areas of feedback um, that you receive and Ultimately, that's going to improve your business. And I think it just comes down to the one percenters um, when you start 
responding to some of these bits of feedback. Every single one of these things won't transform your business, um, but I think most of running a business is just making a lot of small incremental improvements to your business over time that no one really sees, uh, but over a long period of time can make a transformational shift in the quality of your business and the quality of your service, um, which then translates into an enhanced uh, client experience. And then I think the wheel basically just keeps spinning and you know, that's going to result in more referrals and easier client acquisition uh, and, and you can have a much better business as a result. Yeah, well, yeah. well um, I, and thanks for bringing us that framework around awareness, um, consideration, purchase, service and loyalty. That's, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, now, just uh, another thing that I wanted to chat to you about was just around um, time, uh, working on your business versus working in your business and how uh, great planners out there are growing businesses at the moment and, and really scaling up yeah mate, definitely so time management is a is a huge consideration for well, everyone really but i think in the, the landscape that we're dealing with at the moment the conversations we're having with advisors is they've never really been busier um, there are so many things going on keeping up to, up to date with legislative changes product changes you know client demands um, changing fee structures all these sorts of things um, that it's very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day work and not spend the appropriate amount of time on your business. So again, there's a great framework I like. It's called the McKinsey model. Uh, it's essentially a 70-20-10 structure of, of time management. And you can apply this 70-20-10 rule to, to a number of different areas. Um, we do it internally with, with learning, uh, for example, that uh, 70% of your, your uh, learning is done on the job. 20% is through internal um, courses and and 10% through more formal um, courses like degrees, diplomas, that that sort of thing. But for a financial advisor, the uh, the 70-20-10 model really is a way of splitting up your time in between the three different roles that you play. Uh, Now, you play these as a self-employed financial advisor and essentially the three roles are you are the advisor, uh, you are the CEO of the business, uh, but you also wear an entrepreneurial hat. You're also an entrepreneur. And I think the best way you can really split your time between the three is 70% of your time is doing your day job. You're meeting with clients. Uh, you're constructing SOAs or reviewing SOAs. Um, you're engaging with clients, file noting, all that sort of stuff. So that's that's the sort of basics, the ins and outs of being a financial advisor. It's, it's the technical work uh, that we do. Um, I don't know if you've, you've read the, the E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Yes. Yep. Uh, it's one of those business Bibles, uh, I, I find. I, I reckon that's it's one of the better uh, business improvement books out there that I've read. And, and he splits up the three roles into the technician, the manager, and the entrepreneur. So the technician, the advisor. 20% of your time, I think, really should be uh, spent with that managerial or the CEO hat on. And that is really when you're having a look at the broader aspects of your business. And this is where we start to work on the business. And this is really looking at all things like your marketing strategies, your financials, are you meeting your financial hurdles? Uh, It's staff management. Uh, It's looking at the technology uh, suite that you have within your business uh, and is your technology um, meeting your needs and your clients' needs or do you need to tweak it? Uh, It's looking at compliance issues and and things like that. So it's, it's the broader running of the business and really this is where the business planning side fits in. So we're doing a lot of business planning at, at, at this point of time with our advisors. Um, this is really all the stuff that we are covering now with the business planning um, with our corporates uh, really 
fits under that CEO space. And 20% of your time, it might sound like a bit, it's roughly a, a day a week. Um, but if you average that out over a month, it's roughly sort of four days per month. But I think for those businesses that uh, do continually improve, uh, that do have that long-term strategic view and that will be more successful down the track, you do need to spend some quality time working on your business, not just being caught up in the day-to-day work that we do as an advisor. Yeah, this is an interesting model because it does, it's sort of like three and a half days working with clients directly, uh, one, one day a week, you know, 20% of the time working on your business and, and half a day a week in that um, transformational entrepreneur headspace where you're thinking long-term and how we're going to really scale the business in, in, in that form. So it, is, it, it does equal quite a bit of time when you think about the 20% and the 10% of your week. But it'd be really interesting to go back and look at, I guess, your diary over the last, you know, uh, you know, a little bit of time and say, is that what, is that what my diary reflects? Oh, absolutely. And I yeah, hadn't quite touched on that, that 10%, but yeah, thanks for raising that in terms of the entrepreneurial time. And, and this is really when you can put your, your thinking hat on and, and it's really thinking, how do I 10X my business? How do I have the long-term, make sure I have uh, a viable, not just a viable business, but a, a thriving business? Uh, where is the industry headed and how can I maybe pivot uh, to make the most of any, any um, changes that's going on within the, in the industry over this period of time? So a lot of that period, a lot of that time, that that thinking is, is really, I think, reading, thinking, being on top of industry trends, um, and then working out how you can pivot your business. And it might even be around bringing in alternative revenue streams. There's some really good coaching firms, uh, one that I've attended a, a couple of sessions, and essentially what they do is each quarter take their business owner clients away, and each quarter the, the aim for this offsite is to come up with another revenue stream that's going to generate $10,000 a month in new revenue. And the end goal of uh, after a few years is that you've got 10 different revenue streams of $10,000 a month uh, coming into your business. So I think this is really where that entrepreneurial mindset comes in and start thinking about are there online programs or things like that that you might be able to start releasing as a business and you start uh, educating uh, students through schools and, and have a service like that, that that they can pay for. Things like that that might be completely ancillary to what you're doing as part of your day job now, but maybe long-term, having diversified revenue come into your business is going to protect your business because we know that there is a lot of fee pressure at the moment. Um, there is risk, you know, ongoing risk to insurance commissions. They're certainly not going up. They may go down or, or maybe wiped out completely over the next few years. No one really knows. I mean, touch wood, that never happens because we know how important life insurance advisors are. Um, but nonetheless, it does remain a, a small risk. So this entrepreneurial space, I think that's where we need to start thinking about the, the broader long-term um, advantages that we might be able to gain as a business looking at some of these alternative uh, solutions. Fantastic. Thank you. And that was called the McKinsey model. McKinsey, yeah. So McKinsey, the consulting company, um, I believe they first came up with it. And yeah, it's, it's a very useful model for, for structuring your time. And I think as, as you touched on, looking back in your diary, it would be very interesting to see what our weeks actually end up looking like. And I know we, we always, in when I was in distribution, essentially looked at having an ideal week and you'd always have Monday and Friday with the administration and planning days and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday were full of appointments. Never ended up looking like that, but... I think ultimately, if you can actually plan and block out some time to, to do the planning, to do the admin, to do your day job, that's really the best that you can do. But you do need to be ruthless in protecting that time in your diary that you set aside for that long-term planning because 
ultimately that's going to make you uh, more successful. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for bringing us that model. Now, um, tell us about you. Tell us about your, what does your year look like? What, so what are the main things you're working on with the planners uh, in 2021? Yeah, so we're, um, as I mentioned, we're doing a heck of a lot of work at the moment with business planning uh, with our advisors. So we developed an online business planning tool and, and that's really, it's, it's designed to be pretty seamless. It's, it's looking back over the last 12 months at what were the big issues that were faced and what they need to do over the next 12 months to be successful and looking at a whole range of areas that we sort of covered off under that CEO space. So the big thing that we're going to be working on this year is a whole series of quarterly sprints with each of our individual businesses to help them achieve all of their desired objectives, uh, which is really important. Uh, As a licensee as well, uh, obviously there's a whole raft of changes that are going on within the industry. Uh, It's really important that we have the final few advisors uh, finish the fast year exam and having sat the fast year exam and I know the rest of the leadership team and um, I think another seven or eight around around the business uh, have, have all sat it. It's a, it's a very uh, nerve-wracking exam and it's one that's I think everyone is, is very glad to get behind them once they've completed it. So that's a big focus as well for the year as well as just really focusing I think on it's a continual improvement process as well. Fraser it's it's not necessarily one thing that's going to drive transformational change. It's, it's really driving that continual improvement mindset within our advice businesses of chipping away at the one percenters. And over time, that aggregation of marginal gains can, can make a significant improvement to all of our businesses. Hey, look, congratulations on all the exams, by the way. But I really like this 90-day sprint concept um, as well. I think it's very important to just... A yes, as yes, from an entrepreneurial point of view or a management point of view, there might be 10 things we want to achieve, but let's just um, prioritize and focus on one and get that done and get it in, implemented before we start the next in the, in the next 90 days. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's really important to just keep the engine ticking over as well. It's, it's really nice to have completed one particular goal within that 90 day sprint um, and then put the feet up, but it, in order to keep the momentum moving and, and keep progressing, it's really important to then yeah, celebrate the win, celebrate whatever project we've just completed, but then roll into the next one. Yeah. And there's a good, again, a, a not a bad little model that, that I don't mind that we, we talk about from time to time. When we run through a 90-day sprint, there's a coach in the States called Robin Sharma, and he advocates when you're, you're trying to implement, whether it's a new project or might be write a book or whatever it might be, he calls it the 9091 model, where for the next 90 days, um, for the first 90 minutes of the next 90 days, just focus on one thing. So if it's a really important project uh, to you or your business, block out the first 90 minutes of your diary for every day over that quarter and just focus on that one thing. Uh, and by doing so, you're going to give yourself ample time to really successfully deliver on that particular project and, and that particular goal. Um, because far too often, again, as we talked about with time management, if it's not in the diary, it just won't happen. And we all know what we like with projects for university and, and all the rest of it. They normally end up happening in the, in the last week. Um, but if you can ruthlessly stick to that 90-91 type of framework, um, then you're going to deliver some exceptional results over the, over the period of time uh, over a year. And probably a very good habit to get into. Well, uh, Michael, we might leave it there. Thank you so much for coming and sharing those business models with us in the Scale Up series. Really appreciate uh, all of your time and, and your, your insights. And if somebody else wants to get a hold of you to continue that conversation, what's the best way for them to find you? Yeah, sure. Thanks very much for the opportunity, Fraser. And if someone wants to reach out, uh, the best place is probably on LinkedIn, uh, just Michael Laws. Or if you want to send me an email, it's michael.laws 
and Laws is L-A-W-E-S, different uh, at affinia.com.au. Fantastic. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thanks, Bryce. Well, there you have it, another episode of the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and I'm joined by Emily Blanche. G'day, Emily. Hey, Fraser. Hey, now it's a good, good part of the week for us. We get to do a few shout-outs, and uh, who should we give a shout-out to today? All right, today I want to give a big shout-out to Nathan Fradley, Michael Miller, and Andrew Lane, three XY advisors who are spearheading an upcoming ethics or XY ethics committee group. So, Throughout discussions, these guys have noticed that while ethical dilemmas were being discussed in person or posted on the XY platform, there was no viable, universal and easily accessed point to help practitioners in in making ethical decisions. So in, uh, to answer this problem, we're, we're kicking off a committee as a way for advisors to get peer-reviewed uh, responses to ethical dilemmas. So we're launching the group by opening up applications for those or people advisors providers to join as a committee member so yeah watch this space more details to come very soon but i just wanted to give a massive shout out to these guys who are just really uh super driven and and looking for ways to raise the standard in in advice so well done guys yeah this is a really fantastic uh, idea and if you're interested in joining the committee then you know as em said um, you know, uh, contact contact us, contact them, um, and we're more than happy to see if you can uh, put an application to become part of that committee. Or if you have an ethical dilemma and you're not sure of it, um, and this is really handy for a lot of advisors that don't have, you know, larger practices or groups behind them. So, yeah, this is fantastic. If you've got an ethical dilemma, uh, then throw it towards the committee. 